It may just seem like a footnote to learn that British composer Michael Tippett spent a good part of his career as a radio broadcaster for the BBC in keeping with his dedication to music education. But what's of interest to us right now is Michael Tippett, the radio listener, as we consider his powerful oratorio, A Child of Our Time. Not only did world events coming to him, perhaps by way of the BBC, have a deep impact on him, but he cites two musical examples. He writes, I don't remember precisely how A Child of Our Time first came into my head. I can remember being much affected by Herschel Grinspan's shooting of diplomat Ernst von Rath at the German legation in Paris in the autumn of 1938, and I remember listening on Christmas Day of that year to the broadcast of Hector Berlioz's lovely Childhood of Christ. And afterwards, trying to think out what had become nowadays of the emotional power in the once universally accepted image of the Christ child, a power which at one time could make all Europe bend its knee, at least for a season. That from Kenneth Gorg's study of a child of our time. We learn that Tippett moved then from the accepted image of Christ as Savior, as portrayed by Berlioz in his oratorio, to a broader notion of the responsibility that each human has for wrestling with the good and the bad, the light and the dark, in life and the world. And during his search for an appropriate musical way to express that broadening, Tippett said that he heard a spiritual one day while listening to the radio. He said, a black male singer was performing Steal Away at the phrase, the trumpet sounds within my soul. I was blessed with an immediate intuition that I was being moved by the phrase in some way beyond what the musical phrase warranted, that I could test in performance the fact that the spiritual presented no expressional barriers anywhere in Europe nor maybe anywhere in the world. That from an article by Jeffrey Poland in the Choral Journal. The only reason it's worth mentioning the role that radio played in the shaping of Michael Tippett's creative process as he was preparing a child of our time is that it can be a reminder to us we may just happen to be listening to the radio right now, and perhaps we too will be touched in a way we hadn't expected, as Tippett was by the Berlioz and the spiritual he heard by chance on the radio. And if we are then moved to attend the upcoming performance of Tippett's oratorio at Marywood University, we may be enriched beyond measure.
For the first time in five years, the Marywood University Concert Choir and Orchestra, along with four vocal soloists, will join forces to present a major performance. This Sunday, the two ensembles will present the monumental piece of music we've just heard about, Michael Tippett's oratorio, A Child of Our Time. We had a chance to speak by Zoom with the director of the orchestra, Evan Harger, and the concert choir director, Rick Hoffenberg. Evan Harger, instructor and director of orchestral activities at Marywood and the music theater and dance department co-chair, Rick Hoffenberg, associate professor of choral conducting and director of choral activities at Marywood, Dr. Hoffenberg. He really devoted himself to social and political causes throughout his career. I mean, to give some examples outside of A Child of Our Time, uh, later in life, Tippin himself was an openly gay man, and he, in the 1960s, wrote an opera with a libretto uh, about an openly gay couple in the 1960s. He wrote operas subsequent to that in the 70s and 80s that dealt with racial tensions and intergenerational families. And there was one about two orphans, uh, one black, one white, and racial tensions involved. And he was so far ahead of his time. And he was a conscientious objector, as was Benjamin Britten. And the two of them were supportive of each other. Britten helped out Tippett at various times, including arranging the premiere of A Child of Our Time, and they both held very strong convictions in that regard. Tippett, after completing A Child of Our Time, went to jail for his belief rather than go to war. And in the immediate aftermath of the Nazi persecutions of the Jews, which became, of course, increasingly violent, Tippett felt the need to express himself through a composition. That was the way, the only way he knew how. And even though the event that is said to have inspired Tippett was Kristallnacht, which was the Nazis' supposed response to a, a 17-year-old Polish Jew by the name of Herschel Grisban killing a Nazi official, that was really it was just a justification for the sorts of pogroms that they were already inflicting on the Jews. But the Nazis used it as an excuse for these just horrendously violent attacks that horrified many people, including Tippett. But it was about a year until Tippett started the work. Uh, Kristallnacht was in November of 1938, and he didn't start the piece until about a year later. But what the immediate instigation was Britain's declaration of war on Germany. And he felt at that time that he he needed to put pen to paper. And so he had originally intended for T.S. Eliot to be the librettist, which is an interesting choice because uh, literary fans will no doubt know that T.S. Eliot is an avowed anti-Semite. But T.S. Eliot was not opposed to the idea. He said to, to Tippett, put your ideas, very specific textual ideas down, and let me see what you have in mind. And Tippett's ideas were very well fleshed out. He knew that he wanted a three-part oratorio along the lines of 
Handel's Messiah. And like Messiah, he wanted the first part to be introductory to set the scene, the second part more narrative, and the third part to examine any moral consequences and to be more analytical. And when Eliot looked at what Tippett had written, he said, you know, you've already essentially written out the makings of, of a libretto. There, you should just finish it yourself. Tippett also said something suggesting that he thought maybe his words would outshine the music. So there may have been a little arrogance there. But nonetheless, <laughs> Eliot said to Tippett, you just go ahead and write the libretto. And from that point on, I will add, for all of Tippett's oratorios and operas, he wrote his own libretti. That was a pattern that started with A Child of Our Time. And uh, as many people know, if they're familiar with the piece, he used Negro spirituals much as Bach might have used Lutheran chorales in a passion. He was drawn to their sense of universality. And wrapping up this answer, the last thing I want to say is that it absolutely blows my mind that during World War II, more than 80 years ago, that he had the wherewithal to think about using a piece of music crafted by, in this case, American slaves, and as a British composer of a different generation, taking that music and using it for its universal sentiment and artistic value to represent oppressed peoples throughout the world and in different different ages. That's such a contemporary idea and such a brilliant stroke, I think. And Evan, when you began to be familiar with the score, what did you find right away or not about the relationship between the text and the orchestral forces? Absolutely. The text setting is immaculate. It, like every single word, when I was analyzing and playing through the score and thinking about the music, I went through and just spoke through all of the movements I put the sort of strong and weak stress marks in my score. And, and I noticed every moment of the score is set in a way that's so organic, except when he really wants to highlight something that really jumps out. And then he finds a way to set it so that it's really 
really highlighted. So in a way, I put him up there right with Purcell and Britton as a as a setter of English song. I mean, he just is an absolute wonderful wordsmith. I have here a line, my favorite line of the whole the whole oratorio, and Tippett's writing is immaculate. You know, it's not often that a composer's libretto is like really good, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And this one is particularly magnificent, but I love this line near the end. He writes, I would know my shadow and my light, so shall I at last be whole. Tippett was, a, I don't know if a fan is the right word, but he was a big proponent and believer in the ideas of Carl Jung and the burgeoning field of psychoanalysis. And he himself benefited from psychoanalysis in his life. And he he is a remarkably literate person. Um, he himself was a rather avowed agnostic, but his knowledge of just religious symbolism from a variety of traditions, there are a number of biblical allusions, I think, in the text, but there are moments where I am convinced that he's drawing from Norse ideas. There's all this metaphors about descending coldness, which draws to mind sort of sections from the poetic Eddas and the Ragnarok. And I, I can't possibly know if that's what he's thinking, but he, throughout his life, was remarkably literate, was very influenced by Jung was interested in sort of medieval Kabbalah. So I just think that he has a whole potpourri of things that I think make, to take it back to Rick's point, it's so universal in its applicability that every movement is just vague enough that it can kind of relate to every audience member in a very specific way. Like there's something for everybody to grab onto, whether you believe one thing or believe another thing or don't believe something that it's kind of written in a way that everybody can empathize with the sentiment, which I think is part of his genius. But what about soloists and chorus? What about that relationship? What does this call for? So it calls for four vocal soloists and I will add that the difficulties are quite intimidating for vocal soloists, chorus, and orchestra alike. You know, you'll sometimes hear just the five spirituals excerpted and none of the rest of the piece done. It's a whole lot easier that way because the spirituals are, are fairly straightforward to prepare. But doing the whole piece is, is a, a huge undertaking, and that's true of certainly the soloists' parts as well. We're really thrilled to have some people who I know are familiar to many of your listeners. Soprano Jennifer Kogel, a full-time faculty member and voice at Marywood. Ellen Rutkowski also teaches at Marywood Mezzo-Soprano and uh, is familiar as a performer throughout Northeast Pennsylvania for many years. Ditto for tenor Wes Poole and the wonderful bass Moses Andrade. So we, we really lucked out with that roster of soloists. And as far as the choral writing goes, you know, one of the things that I think has really made it interesting for the choral singers is that in parts of the piece, they play characters just as the soloists do. 
The tenor soloist plays the part of the 17-year-old Jew, Herschel Grinspan, but interestingly, Tippett does not refer to him. He, he avoids proper names, doesn't refer to him that way. He refers to Grinspan as the boy. And the soprano plays the part of his mother, but it's just the mother. And the bass serves as something of a narrator, and the mezzo-soprano takes on various roles. But I think that's part of universalizing it, not unlike the way Brahms universalizes his message in the German Requiem so that it can be applicable to people whether they are religious or not. As far as the chorus goes, what I think is fun for the chorus is that they play the roles of both the persecutors and the persecuted. And in, in one movement, they do so at the same time in a, in a really exciting double chorus where they're just going back and forth antiphonally um, in, in very rapid fire fashion. So it, it's very exciting. I mean, the way you have the chorus integrated into the action in, say, a Handel oratorio, this is very much along the same lines. I just spoke with a poet from Philadelphia who's written a book about war titled Beyond Repair, and the poems are very hard. They're very hard to read some of them. She does have humor, but they're very hard. And we had a discussion about, is there hope here? Is there any hope? Where do we look for hope? So in a case like this, is Michael Tippett taking us deep? You use the word light. Is there some sort of even glimmer? Right. So there's a term that I think I don't, th this might be a term that I picked up from somewhere. So I can't entirely give you the exact source, but it's one that I think I've come up with, but I've, I often describe the aesthetic of this whole time period in a way. I think the Tippet, its outlook on life is similar in respects to a number of other important works from this period, but I often call it a kind of sacred sacrilegiousness in a way. There's a little bit of both mixed in. And by that, I mean, that I do think at bottom there is hope and there is a sense of sublimeness and a sense of numinousness and wonder, but it is intermixed with some very strong commentary on the state of the world. And I think for Tippett, he wants us to avoid a kind of blind, like, wouldn't it be great if the world was just perfect utopianism? I think because he was influenced by Jung, like that line I said earlier, I would know my shadow and my light. I think he thinks that a, a healthy way of being a person is to come to terms with your dark side or with, with the reality of what it means to be a flawed person. And if we can all see that within ourselves, I think that he thinks that that's a big part of what it means to be a healthy adult, right? So at the end of the work, I am left thinking that there's hope, but it is a hope with a question mark at the end. In fact, I think that to anyone that listens to the work, the ending is perplexing and brilliant and thought-provoking, but I do hear it as a big musical question mark. And you, Rick? I, I agree with everything Evan said. Tippett considered this piece a statement of man's inhumanity to man. And so there's no question there is deep concern. And that shouldn't be surprising when you consider that it was finished in 1941. Tippett was dismayed at what he saw as the apathy of the world toward the, the suffering that was taking place in Europe and the actions of, of Nazi Germany, which were getting worse and worse and worse. So the fact that there is a lot of concern expressed in the piece, including the very last note, 
brilliantly he at the very end of the last spiritual which you would expect to end on a major chord he brings it down to the relative minor and it it's the most haunting ending and it just leaves you with great intentional uncertainty but there there is certainly hope and i i just want to give one example that i think is is such a brilliant way of him communicating it there are 30 short movements throughout the piece many very short movements the end of the very first movement that the chorus sings the last line they sing is a, a descending sixth on the words it is winter it is winter Papa, this descending interval on the text it is winter the conclusion of the last movement that they sing with the exception of the final spiritual turns that interval around and the chorus sings it is spring and so after an hour of music in between he turns the interval upside down and changes winter to spring so there are there are certainly clues throughout that he has optimism but this this piece is a plea it is a plea to the world that vengeance is not the answer war is not the answer and so I wouldn't describe it as either pessimistic or optimistic, but just um, a plea. And you're nodding your head, Evan. Yeah, it's a kind of humble realism with a little bit of hope thrown in, but it's really, I, I think it's so provocative and it's moving. And I think it, I agree that it's a plea and it's calling us to a deeper relationship with ourselves and with our relationship with others. I think that's primarily what I feel about it. This relationship between darkness and light is a theme that recurs throughout the piece. And Tippett doesn't necessarily, he thinks darkness and light are within all of us. And he doesn't necessarily come down entirely on any one side. There are moments where he seems to suggest that he doesn't think that this this Jewish teenager should have shot the Nazi official. So he doesn't see anything as black and white, but we know that the the darkness and light in all of us was central in his own mind. On the the title page, even though T.S. Eliot was not the author of the libretto, Tippett quotes him. And the quote on the title page is, the darkness declares the glory of light, which is such a wonderful quote from T.S. Eliot. It's from his work, Murder in the Cathedral. And I think it represents an idea that is really central to Tippett in this piece. Yeah, Tippett is, he's equally, he's equally suspicious. I mean, he, throughout most of the piece, he's decrying the, the vengeance and the violence, but he's equally suspicious of kind of a blind optimism. There is a sequence towards the end of the piece where the chorus in their kind of Greek chorus mentality are asking questions about, you know, why did this happen? There's a series of questions. Why does this have to happen? And there's a number of answers that the chorus gives like that are a little overly apologetic. They're kind of like grand, overly utopian answers. And then finally the bass jumps in and seems to reject these answers in a way. It seems like Tippett kind of wants us to confront evil and doesn't want us to kind of turn a blind eye to it or come up with sort of nice, wonderful answers to it. I think he wants us to live in the discomfort and whatever answers we find have to include the difficulty of the answer. So he's, yeah, he does, he does not like a blind optimism either. He's a kind of a realist. 
What about the title then? Why do you think he settled on a child of our time? That's a great, great question. First of all, let me start with the sort of most prosaic answer to that question, which is that the year before he wrote this piece, there was an anti-Nazi novel written by a Hungarian by the name of Odin von Horvat. And Horvat himself had a rather tragic existence. He was killed by a, a branch that fell during a thunderstorm at age 36. But he, he penned this, all of Horvat's works were in some way expressing opposition to the Nazis. And so when Tippett saw this novel, A Child of Our Time, he didn't necessarily base the oratorio on the novel, but he clearly was drawn to the title and the ideas behind the novel. I think that Tippett saw Grinspan's story as one that could have been anyone's story during World War II. Grinspan was not, um, he's portrayed as a normal 17-year-old boy who was simply brought to the breaking point, not, not a murderer, but somebody whose parents were suffering uh, at the hands of the Nazis. And seeing his parents suffering, he just couldn't take it anymore and expressed his frustration by shooting a Nazi official. And I think Tippett felt that he's somebody who was wrestling with the issues that we're all wrestling with, and that could have been any of us, and that it's a reflection of our, of our time. But the way that Tippett brings in the words of the title is so magnificent. It doesn't happen in the beginning of the piece. It happens in the middle, in this glorious climax with the sopranos ascending to a high A, and he finally, finally has the chorus rather triumphantly sing A Child of Our Time in the, the most extraordinary way. And how about the support for that, Evan, from the orchestra? What's going on in the orchestra at that moment? What's remarkable about the orchestra throughout the piece, and in that moment in particular, is that it's so colorful and it's so evocative. And yet, when you look at the score, the orchestration is really typical, not to make a allusion to Tippett, but a typical orchestration. It's a, almost a Tchaikovsky symphony in terms of its orchestration. There's slightly more woodwinds than that, but he is an absolute master of getting beautiful, provocative colors, both kind of impressionistic, effervescent colors, but he also is very comfortable getting into the darker, more um, brazen colors. And so there's a wide gamut of colors, but he can get them all through standard instrumentation. There's no bowed crotales or gongs being dipped in water. I mean, there's none of, we, we haven't gone to that point in history yet, but he has, he's a brilliant orchestrator and he knows how to make room for the chorus all of the instruments highlight the feelings that are going on in the characters in such tangible ways. So not only do you hear the, the beautiful text, 
but you're given this amazing psychological insight into how these characters feel through the colors that he chooses to use. So it's it's a real three-dimensional experience for the audience, I think. And from what you say, it's clear to us, I'm sure if we listen carefully, why it's an oratorio for our time. But I have to ask you to articulate a little bit of that, if you would, each of you. That is a profound question. Thank you. I think what Tippett does so marvelously, and Rick hit on it multiple times, the universality of it combined with the poignancy of it, the issues, I think what Tippett is saying in the libretto for me is that at bottom, there's something about human nature that every generation has to continually relearn. I think every generation, he thinks we have to relearn these dark sides of our psyches, of our souls, however you want to put it. But in that way, it's a perennial question. Like, why are people cruel and harmful towards one another? Why do we otherize? What is the root of xenophobia? And obviously, these are big, giant questions. I think Hippet wants the piece to be a mirror. In fact, in the second movement of the piece, he says there's a text watching the chaotic mirror, referring, I think, to a little bit of self-reflection, our own kind of psyches. And I think he thinks that when we take the time to look at ourselves, it's not always this wonderfully rational thing, right? This is a time when the general public is now becoming aware of the works. Uh, th- these particular thinkers are earlier, but in terms of popular acceptance of people like Freud and Jung and Darwin and Nietzsche, right? Are the people's understandings of themselves as people in the world at this time, there's a remarkable level of upheaval in people's images of themselves. So I think he thinks when you look at yourself, it's not always a pleasant thing that you see. And so what makes it topical for our time is it invites the audience to not only reflect on the challenges of the world today, the challenges of America today, but how does that relate to the content of our own character? And it's a challenge for us to investigate our own biases and our own privileges and our own histories and our own legacies to try to see how can we push ourselves to be better people. You know, one of the things that I find very striking in the piece is how prophetic it was. We, of course, nowadays are wrestling with racial tensions, many many types of, of tension in our society. And one source of, of racial tension, of course, is police violence, shootings, particularly of African-Americans. And there's a line in the tippet that seems to refer to that with remarkable specificity. And uh, this is where it's hard to believe it was composed in 1941. When he's recounting Grinspan's shooting of the Nazi official, the way he phrases it is, and this is the mezzo-soprano soloist singing this, she sings, but he shoots only his dark brother and see he is dead.
and, and the movement ends that way. But he shoots only his dark brother. And why did Tippett choose? I mean, he's describing the German official, the Nazi official, as the dark brother. But you take that line and you put it into 2021. And what could be more relevant than the issues we're facing today? So both on a general level, as Evan already articulated so well, and on a specific level in the recounting of the story that is central to the piece, I think Tippett hit on issues that we are facing very much today, not only in in this country, but around the world. Well, tell us where we can find you and, and when... Well, I I hope everyone can come see it. It, It's really not often that people have an opportunity to see and hear this piece. Admission is free. We are thrilled to be able to welcome anyone and everyone to this performance and all of our performances. Uh, Of course, there is a mask mandate in place, but no other requirements. It's on Sunday, November 21st at 4 p.m. in the Set Lavergetta auditorium on the Marywood campus. And I, I want to add, we've we've focused on the, the tippet. There are two pieces on the, the program. If we have just a moment, I'd, I'd welcome Evan to talk about the Hail Stork, the three spirituals for orchestra also on the program, which are really a wonderful coupling for the tippet. We are opening the concert with a work by a remarkable living composer, Adolphus Hailstork. I first encountered Hailstork's music when I heard this amazing Symphony Number no. 2. The first time I heard this, it absolutely blew my mind, and I knew I had to find some Adolphus Hailstork to do here at Marywood. And the three spirituals for orchestra are settings of three traditional melodies. Every time I feel the spirit, Kumbaya and O oh Freedom. The outer movements are very rhythmic, very colorful, very percussive, a lot of brass. It's the middle movement that I heard for the first time. That I love the outer movements, but the middle movement is the most sublime setting of Kumbaya. It opens with a solo English horn over a bed of strings playing a beautiful, almost film-esque kind of scoring. And it is so placid and poignant and beautiful and tranquil and I, I every time I hear our students play it it's absolutely gorgeous so it's a wonderful way to open the concert that will then segue into the Michael Tippett a child of our time We just heard from Evan Harger, instructor and director of orchestral activities at Marywood University in Scranton, and Dr. Rick Hoffenberg, who is co-chair of the Music, Theater, and Dance Department, associate professor of choral conducting, and director of choral activities at Marywood. And as we heard, for the first time in five years, the Marywood University Concert Choir and Orchestra, with four vocal soloists, will join forces to present a major work. And it is this Sunday, November 21st at four in the afternoon in the Set La Vergetta Center for the Performing Arts. The concert is free and open to the public with masking protocols in effect. And of course, the work, the monumental oratorio by Sir Michael Tippett, A Child of Our Time. The soloists, Jennifer Cogill, soprano, 
Ellen Ritkowski, mezzo-soprano, Wes Poole, tenor, and Moses Andrade, bass, with, as we learn, the Marywood Orchestra and the Marywood Concert Choir. Sunday, November 21st at 4 in the afternoon on the campus of Marywood University in Scranton. For more information on the web, marywood.edu, marywood.edu slash mtd.